what, what this represents is the, uh, the sort of official opening of SpaceX Seattle. Uh, which Six is- years ago, SpaceX founder Elon Musk took to a stage in Seattle to announce his vision for a constellation of satellites that would be the backbone for a new space-based internet network. Today, that vision is coming to fruition as Musk's Starlink network now boasts over 1,200 low-Earth orbit satellites, beaming internet connectivity to thousands of beta customers. And regular launches are adding 60 new satellites each time to the constellation. Three, two, one, zero. Ignition and liftoff. Welcome to another edition of 2025 Tomorrow Today. I'm GeekWire co-founder John Cook. And I'm Jordan Voss, Senior Vice President with Northern Trust. Starlink is far and away leading the race, but Musk isn't the only one with visions of building internet networks in the sky. In this episode, we'll talk with experts about the latest developments, the history, and what this all means for society. Rob Myerson is the former president of Blue Origin, the space company started by Amazon founder Jeff Bezos. He's also a partner with C5 Capital, a space investment firm. Myerson laid out four key players in the satellite internet race and detailed the challenges facing companies trying to bring internet connectivity to the far reaches of the planet. Well, I, I think that's it's both cost and it's technical. Um, there, there are different... You know, it starts with the architecture, the way the different companies that have approached it. You mentioned there seems to be a new one every day. There's really, there's really uh, uh, four that are sort of uh, dominating the conversation. There's there's Starlink, which SpaceX is developing. You know, they've talked about numbers of satellites in the tens of thousands of satellites to to provide that global coverage, and uh, um, up to I've heard numbers up to forty thousand. And they've launched more than a thousand satellites to date. So um, I believe it's it's more than a thousand now. Um, Amazon Kuiper, which uh, has announced a constellation of three thousand two hundred thirty six satellites, uh, and then Telesat Lightspeed, which uh, has made a lot of um, news lately with their announcement of their company uh, having Talus Alenia build the satellites, and then uh, uh, the investment from Quebec. Uh, to build a 298 satellite constellation, and then OneWeb, which went into bankruptcy and is, was recently come out of bankruptcy. Uh, constellation was roughly about 650 satellites. It may it may change a little more, a little less, but uh, they have satellites on orbit and are making progress. But but each one of these constellations is slightly different. They're they're different in the number of satellites. They're different in the altitude that they're going to operate at, anywhere from. 500 to 1,000 kilometers above Earth, but bo- both in what we call low Earth orbit, and then also how they um, operate as a network. But some experts say there are plenty of questions and concerns about the viability and other issues. University of Washington professor Sadia Pekinen is the founding co-director of the Space Policy and Research Center. She specializes in the commercial, legal, and security policies shaping outer space affairs. I would say from a commercial perspective, uh, the business model still has to be proven. Starlink already has about 10,000 beta users or 10,000 uh, customers. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're projecting that they will uh, be able, for a system that's supposed to cost about $10 billion, they're supposed to be generating about $30 billion in revenues, or such as the uh, promise. I think that that's a promise. So, uh, you know, we have to wait and see if these systems perform as they're supposed to perform. 
if commercially they're able to deliver. Uh, so that's one big thing. The other big thing is the other big challenge that I see is that uh, we do have a regulatory issue in space where we have, if we if things stay the course and we get 100,000 satellites or more, uh, and these are not just from the, the US, but other countries also want to come in. The big challenge is making sure that it all remains peaceful and sustainable somehow so that we can continue to rely on that. And that is a very difficult thing. So that also is a tremendously uh, important uh, challenge. Uh, so both those uh, sort of the commercial realities as well as the political realities uh, make me cautious about uh, projecting that this is on an uh, onwards and upwards uh, trajectory. Could you talk a little bit more about the potential benefit that you see for people living in maybe those more remote uh, locations yeah. or perhaps for first responders in remote situations? What's the promise of this technology? Of course, I think everybody realizes this is a critical infrastructure that's going into place, right? We're at the very early stages, but the promise is precisely that uh, we would be able, uh, for people in these rural areas, they would be able to connect to educational facilities. They would be able to connect to emergency and preparedness uh, networks. The other, I think, big promise is that, you know, I think it alleviates some of the divisions that we're seeing, which is between the urban and rural, as you correctly point out. So uh, it may well be that we begin to see more economic development. The vision isn't a new one. You might remember Teledesic, the Seattle area satellite company co-founded by telecom pioneer Craig McCaw back in 1990. Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates was among the early investors who believed in the goal of bringing internet access to the far reaches of the globe with satellites. One of the few remnants of that early system is this video presentation from back in the 90s. Teledesic is building a global broadband internet in the sky. The company is creating the world's first network to provide affordable, high-speed internet services. And Teledesic was an idea ahead of its time. It's credited with laying critical groundwork for today's constellations. So why didn't Teledesic take off? We spoke with David Patterson, a veteran aerospace engineer who was the first employee of Teledesic. It was his responsibility to design the entire system. He detailed those early days sparked by an idea first hatched by his colleague, Ed Tuck, and launched in his garage. Uh, think of Teledesic as the uh, maybe the ancestor or the precursor of those systems, or, or that those systems are Teledesic on steroids. Or, and it was the question was, is it possible, and if so, how? Could you provide very high quality voice and broadband data to all areas of the world for a, a reasonable price? And so that was the basis of the uh, first feasibility study that we, the feasibility study where we started out. And that was about a three year process where we, you know, basically it's sort of like playing three dimensional whack a mole. You would, you would come up with uh, all the problems that uh, to solve, and each one we'd solve, we'd, another one would pop, pop up someplace else. One of the lessons learned is is don't try to raise ten billion dollars during the middle of a tech crash. So that was <laughs> we were ten years in. We were ready to sign. We actually had contracts for the uh, building the space infrastructure and building the and launching it and everything. Do you think it was purely a a cash problem, or and, and had you really kind of figured out the technical challenges back at that time? Do you think? Well, again, we went through the conceptual design it came up with a, a system design that we we believed was buildable uh, it was but it was expensive and probably take eight or nine years to build 
we found out that the real one of the real challenges was getting the uh, the spectrum we needed to build it. So we went through a process of getting the FCC and ITU to assign. Actually, we had to get them to create a new category of service for low Earth orbit or non-geostational stationary system uh, fixed satellite service. Then we started to actually build a real company and hiring people and and started working with the aerospace providers to actually complete the design and it, you know, this going from the phys feasibility concept to the uh, an actual design that the aerospace companies would would sign up for we we had uh let's say challenges with uh you know once we actually started working with the other aerospace companies and eventually they designed that we had originally come up with was uh, they reduced it to a smaller number of satellites at a higher altitude to uh, make you know be something they were more comfortable with building. I would guess ended up uh, had several hundred million dollars in the bank, but decided we couldn't build what we wanted to build. So we returned the money to the investors and returned the spectrum to the ITU and the FCC, and uh, you know turned off the lights. And <laughs> but fast forward twenty years, and there's a new race to bring satellite broadband across the globe. Musk, Bezos, and the others are investing billions to build out their distinct constellations. So why now? Former Blue Origin head Rob Meyerson says the big reason is increased technical capabilities, affordability, opportunity, and need. The cost of space access has come down significantly, primarily led by SpaceX, uh, but also the cost of satellites, the cost of uh, satellite electronics have come down over the last decade. So the opportunity to provide global internet access to consumers and enterprise customers like aviation and maritime is is there and that's a that's a real business opportunity it's also um, you know as we transition to 5g networks there's a need for more backhaul uh, to take advantage of a lot of the performance capabilities of 5g so so satellite networks can support those terrestrial networks and um, providing network capacity. I also think there's some other nuances to this, um, especially around Elon Musk and SpaceX that are that are interesting because there's some uni unique opportunities they've taken advantage of. And for example, they uh, SpaceX announced a deal with Microsoft's uh, Azure Space and SES uh, to start connecting modular data centers uh, using the Starlink network uh, last fall. And uh, there was a request for proposals from the Space Development Agency uh, for uh, another 150 satellites to be launched um, for, you know, for the U.S. government uh, to be launched in 2024. So, you know, they're looking for satellites as a commodity. And this business that SpaceX is building on Starlink is going to reach into many of their other customers. And then I think finally, I think it's, um, you know, personally, I think it's about scale and specifically production at scale. You know, at the end of last year, Elon Musk said uh, a quote, it was, uh, we're going to build 1,000 starships to create a self-sustaining city on Mars is our mission. And that number is going to require a lot of engines, a lot of computers, a lot of valves, and a lot of actuators and a lot of structures. And so, uh, for example, there's 47 Raptor rocket engines on each starship stack, so the starship and the booster. Um, so they're going to need to build 47,000 Raptor rocket engines. So getting great at building Starlink satellites, while it's not the exact same thing, it's certainly going to help them to lower the overall cost of Starship in the future. And I think that might be, you know, maybe not the reason for going into this business, but, but one of the 
positive outcomes of it is that practice. One of the most interesting dynamics of the current space race is the rivalry between the two richest men in the world, Musk and Bezos. Having worked directly for Bezos, Meyerson has unique insights. He says the rivals have similar interests, but very different objectives. Yeah, I think they're very similar in terms of wanting to grow the space economy. And um, uh, they're taking they're going about it in different ways. And, and I think Elon Musk has been consistent in his focus about building a city on Mars. And that is that that end goal and everything he and SpaceX are doing is working backward from that end goal. So uh, and for Jeff, you have to differentiate between uh, what he's doing at Blue Origin and what he's doing at Amazon, because they're both space companies, in my opinion. And um, Amazon is uh, enabling a wide range of space businesses to grow on the AWS cloud uh, via ground station. And also they're building Kuiper, this uh, LEO constellation that'll compete with Starlink and Telesat and others. Blue Origin, on the other hand, is focused on transportation and on building the, the road to space. And the, while the ultimate destination is not quite as clear as SpaceX, uh, the way you know Jeff Bezos has characterized this is is really building out that heavy lifting infrastructure, that road to space, so that other business can be built on top of it. With the ever increasing number of satellites and activity in space, Professor Pekkanen says now is the time to consider several critical issues, namely, who sets the rules and how do you enforce them to avoid everything from collisions to conflicts. This whole idea of space traffic management, where um, you know we have clear rules of the road about um, responsible behavior, not just by uh, you know, governments, but also by uh, corporations in space uh, is I think an extremely important one. And you're asking me if that structure has gone into place? No, it has not. Um, so uh, right now we're at the stage where the technology is sort of going into place, but law and policy and regulation, I think do need to uh, catch up and make sure that things remain uh, stable and peaceful. How do you see that playing out in a world where it seems like we are yeah. becoming more tribal and in, into our own um, yeah. regimes and countries? Yeah. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of global uh, participation and global cooperation, at least like there maybe was uh um, with the formation of things like NATO or what have you. How do you see this playing out and who's going to be the ultimate controller of space? I hope that there's no ultimate controller, but I hope <laughs> that there is more um, uh, peaceful efforts to build collaboration. Um, so I think the United States is in a very uh, important uh, place, not just in terms of its technologies, it is a leader, but it's also been a, a, a visionary leader in terms of uh, outer space affairs and uh, politics. You are absolutely correct to say that there is no appetite for uh, you know, building new uh, treaties or uh, coming up with new regimes, but it is also irresponsible to continue to let things go the way that they were. If we want to think of this as a utility that affects our civilian, commercial and military realities. So I think the United States does need to step up to the plate uh, and it does need to provide the kind of leadership. There are uh, you know, uh, models out there, public, private, commercial. Where, where does China play in all of this yeah. in terms of its own efforts related to providing internet constellations? Yeah. And w w how do you see that playing out with them? China is an extremely important player uh, in the new space race. And it is also stepping up its game uh, with respect to commercial technologies um, and with respect to the expansion of uh, commercial technologies. Uh, they certainly have the, the human capital in place. They certainly have the 
uh, the will and the determination to sort of um, be a part of this commercial landscape. I mean, what about private citizens? I mean, I, I understand from yeah. the nation state perspective, but I mean, we've got two private citizens in the U.S. that yes. are capable of just launching rockets and doing whatever they want. There, it's, yes. you know, it's unclear who controls it. Yes. They they have the money to do it, the technology. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we have fifty people across yeah. the globe doing that, I mean, it becomes crazy. Yeah. So we need the billionaires' boys club of a billionaire boys and girls club of uh, uh, cooperation, and it may come to that. I mean, I do think companies. So I think you make me think that. It is also important that companies start, sort of step up to the plate uh, and think about uh, setting normative standards that help with responsible behavior in space. And some of the, uh, the, uh, the later comers will model their behavior on what the earlier uh, competitors are doing. So SpaceX, Amazon, the way they set up responsible ways of behaving in space, how you deal with orbital debris, what you do in terms of space traffic management will affect the behavior of later comers as well. So I think uh, you're absolutely correct. This is not a something that governments alone uh, can do. Uh, we are very reliant on the commercial sector, but that I think is going to be true across the world. A number of groups have raised concerns with the Federal Communications Commission about potential issues, including, as Pekinen mentioned, collisions in space, environmental concerns such as the brightening of the night sky with thousands of satellites flying around, and cybersecurity. GeekWire's Alan Boyle reports a coalition of policy groups recently filed a formal challenge asking the FCC to put a 180-day hold on approvals for further broadband satellite deployments while a more thorough risk assessment is undertaken. But Meyerson says he isn't worried about many of the concerns raised by the coalition. I've been encouraged by the way that, you know, SpaceX, for example, has been leaning forward and working with the science community on that particular concern about, about astronomy. They've done made changes to the design of their satellites. Um, uh, there has been um, new regulation, for example, in, um, in how, how, you, how quickly you need to deorbit your satellite from orbit uh, uh, after its end of life. And so I think there, you know, there are conflicts, there are questions, but I think uh, like any business, um, as we move into it, we start to resolve those and people work together and collaborate to, uh, to make those, you know, address those issues. But it's safe to assume Musk will be leading the pack, at least for the foreseeable future. Previous reports say the SpaceX founder hopes to generate $30 billion in satellite internet revenue by 2025, to help pay for Mars colonization. And former teledesic engineer David Patterson says success can look very different for the various players. The way uh, we've said it at teledesic was you can do well while you're doing good. So you can, you know, you can make a, a positive business case and at the same time help developing nations and so on and sort of skip a generation of technology. The, the, just deploying terrestrial infrastructure is just very expensive. So. It's, you know, a, a country that has you know, limited infrastructure still can have access to, to the Internet and all the things that that brings. But I think just the, you know, the concept of having the availability of the Internet wherever you are in the world, I believe, is actually has a huge benefit to the world. For now, it's all a vision very much in its infancy with a small market. As we've mentioned, satellite Internet is targeted to those with limited conventional Internet access mostly rural areas, maritime and aviation customers, and eventually developing countries. When it comes to Starlink, customers accepted into the first-come, first-served program pay $499 for a mountable, 
pizza-shaped dish antenna, Wi-Fi router, and power supply. The service itself costs $99 a month. Yeah, John, and users are reporting Starlink currently delivers speeds between 80 and 150 megabits per second for downloads and 30 megabits per second for uploads. There's a reason why they dubbed the program better than nothing. But if you're used to glacial speeds in a rural outpost, these are already a godsend. While it's a lot slower than speeds many of us are used to, Starlink has promised speeds will increase as it adds more satellites to the constellation. As for the competitors like Amazon's Project Kuiper, details have been extremely limited, so there's no way to compare Starlink with the others. That's giving Musk a huge advantage, at least when it comes to PR and mindshare. But plenty of questions remain, most notably whether Starlink or any of the other companies can make enough money to make it worthwhile. Musk recently tweeted that SpaceX uh, is going to lose a lot of money over the next year, saying, quote, every new satellite constellation in history has gone bankrupt. We hope to be the first one that does not. But former Blue Origin head Rob Meyerson says he has no doubt these systems will not only succeed, but form the backbone of a booming space business that eventually ends up fulfilling the promises of visionaries like Musk and Bezos. What gets me the most excited is that we're getting to the point where we can start to build new businesses on top of space infrastructure developed by others. So having global broadband will bring economic development to many areas of the world and raise economies. And opportunities like remote education and tele telehealth are just a few. Uh, and I believe there's going to be many more opportunities in areas like earth science, uh, time and location service, and then applications of IoT, the Internet of Things. Um, that's just the growth in satellites. Uh, the lower cost of satellites and launch have increased investment into other areas of the, uh, the space sector. So Jordan, a lot to chew on there. What are your overall thoughts on broadband from the sky? Uh, I think it could go either way. It's really exciting to watch. Uh, the economics are tough. It's hard to compete with the terrestrial options now. It's really crowded. A lot of people are are in the space already, actually. Uh, but I do see a big demand for uh, remote uh, internet and connectivity. And I think that the product that Starlink specifically is going to be offering is better than a lot of even terrestrial options. You know, when I go back to Wisconsin and visit, I, I know you're, you're a Midwesterner too, John. When I go back there, I'm surprised at how little internet there is in just somewhat rural areas. It's not great, even still. So there's an opportunity there. And I mean, even look at the, the market itself growing, the internet market. Um you know, you're going to want to have governments and the Pentagon and all of these, you know, just looking at like African government governments themselves. There are just so many players. I feel like they're going to want reliable, secure, fast Internet access in, you know, tomorrow's the 2025 economy. So I see it, it although it is clearly a, a, a balance where I could see it failing badly um, and there being no demand like there has not been for previous iterations. I, I do think that likely it will it will work. And and John, just overall, I mean, as you look at some of the good and bad points of Starlink and low Earth orbit connectivity, would you characterize it as a good thing or bad thing? Well I think it's a social good. I mean, I think we need to get more broadband distributed across the globe. And as you just mentioned with your example in Wisconsin, and I experienced it in Ohio as well. There, it's a patchwork, and it's not it's not solid. 
And so building that out, not only in the U.S., but uh, in developing areas of the world, I think is an important uh, goal to set. And I think there are just places that fiber isn't going to go. And as Musk likes to say, there's no fiber on Mars. And if that's his end goal, then, you know, he really needs to build this. So there's a communication system that connects to the planet he wants to die on and not on landing, as he says. You know, it's a big, big, bold bet. There are billions of dollars that have flown it, you know, flooded into this market. Um, it's a complex and challenging problem, not only technically that you're launching rockets into the sky to put satellites orbiting the globe that beams internet connectivity back to a transceiver that puts it in your home. I mean, that's just one of the challenges, as you mentioned. There's the challenges of who owns space and how do these how do these systems communicate with you know, Chinese satellites that are potentially interfering. And it's just so gosh darn complex when you when you unravel all this. I mean, it's a fascinating business challenge, but boy, it, it is a big bet with a lot of money, with a lot of complex regulation tied into it. And it, it, it does take billionaires like Musk and Bezos who just have this much, much bigger vision in order to deliver it. It's almost as though it all fits into this way broader narrative of colonizing Mars. Whereas you look at Kuiper and it's just kind of fitting into the Amazon ecosystem. I mean, it's almost like they're just vertically integrating and bolting in internet to their stack. And it's really cool to think about us talking about what are the social trade-offs for Musk having 42,000 satellites in low earth orbit when for him, it's just a piggy bank to um, ensure that that humanity propagates. <laughs> it's just such an amazing and incredible thought process to have. Yeah, I'm curious. You know, I like to go backpacking. And when you're out backpacking, clear night, it's great. You're looking up at the stars. And it used to be a really quaint and interesting thing, at least for me, when I would look up there and I would spot a satellite. I always thought it was the coolest thing. But now it's becoming relatively commonplace. It's and 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 you can imagine with forty thousand or more of these satellites coming up, that it really does change how we view space. And I I don't want to be one of these folks who's just kind of locked in the way it used to be. But there was just a great podcast on the New York Times where they went out to Wyoming and we're looking at all the wind farms and, and the most of the people in Wyoming or a lot of the people in Wyoming were upset because it changed their landscape, you know, and the, with the big turbines, you know, I don't know. I, there's a part of me that's like nostalgic for just a night sky with without 40,000 satellites zipping around every every moment I look up in the up in the air. And and, and there, so there's a part of me that thinks like, why should that be permitted? Part of the magic of Starlink is that and what makes it different is that the satellites are so close to the earth by comparison. I mean, the Hughes and other you know, geostationary satellites are like 22,000, 22 some thousand miles up. And these are 200 miles up, um, 300 miles up. And so they're way closer. They're way closer than Kuiper. They're way closer than anything. And there's so many of them. They are naked eye visible and they're going to be in our face you're going to see them at dusk you're going to see them at dawn and even with the you know the sh the whatever they call it the sat shield 
uh, blanketing that they have now and the, the reflective paint and everything else. And so it, it is in that way, I mean, somewhat depressing to your point and in, in losing that both excitement of seeing a satellite and just the pristine clarity of the night sky. But there's another view of it, which I think I, I kind of fall into this camp where it's so cool to imagine uh, a future where you can look up at dusk and see the satellites that are providing you internet. I mean, I think that's just kind of a really cool thing, feet of humanity type of thing. You probably like seeing the windmills too when you drive through a <laughs> valley. In in some ways I do. I you know, in some ways I do. And that's that's progress, you know, and it's always uncomfortable, I think, or, or it often is. And there's always trade-offs, you know, nothing is perfect. And I think we have a tendency maybe to romanticize, or at least I do, to romanticize the past. But I I don't mind it. I I uh and you know that some of those are pretty oppressive looking, I think, when you first see them, but if you think about it for a while, it's not so bad. You hate birds. That's my, <laughs> my feeling, Jordan. Just, you don't like birds. No, I think it's it's going to be interesting to watch. Of, uh, of all the topics we've uh, covered here on 2025, tomorrow, today, this is one that's going to be super interesting to watch in the next four or five years to see if it really comes to fruition or if it follows the path of teledesic and craters. And I think none of us know at this juncture whether it's going to be successful or not. Thanks for joining us today on 2025 Tomorrow Today. I'm GeekWire co-founder John Cook. And I'm Jordan Voss, Senior Vice President with Northern Trust. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe, like, and share wherever you get your podcasts. Take care. 2025 Tomorrow Today is produced and edited by Josh Kearns and Cypress Point Podcasting for GeekWire Studios. It's intended for informational purposes only and is not to be taken as investment advice. There may be some overlap between businesses mentioned and the holdings of Northern Trust clients, our hosts, and panelists.